Welcome to the sermon podcast of Forks Community Church, located in Easton, Pennsylvania. For more information about the church, please go to ForksCommunityChurch.org. If you enjoyed this sermon and want others to hear about it, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Thank you very much and enjoy this week's sermon. I wanted to just start off with a little um, anecdote. So this past week, I was with some pastors. We, we, had, we were in a meeting, and we had a lunch at a Chinese buffet in Allentown. And so I had made a joke that, you know, wouldn't it be funny if at our, our next Bible Fellowship Conference, they would pick the speakers by giving them a fortune cookie, and they open up the fortune cookie, and they have to do a sermon on the saying, right, inside the fortune cookie. I always thought that would be, like, kind of a, a cool thing. So I open up my fortune cookie, and here's the saying that I got. Failure is a dress rehearsal for success. Guess what I'm speaking on today? The haunt of failure. God is sovereign over all things, even fortune cookie sayings. (laughs) So we're going to work that into today's message. So if you missed last week, we started a new series, Haunted, How to Get Past the Haunts from Your Past. And The reason that we're doing this is, as I mentioned last week, in my 13 years of ministry, what I've encountered time and time again, ministering to even Christians, is that too many of us are letting our past haunt our present. And it's keeping us from thriving in the love of Christ. It's keeping us from ministering to others effectively. Because what happens is we say, well, I have too much junk in my life. There's no way I can minister to that person. Well, the reality is God does want to use you for the sake of his kingdom. And if we allow those haunts to affect us now in the present, we're going to be paralyzed. And so the point of this sermon or this series is to set you free, to set you free from your past. And so last week we looked at the haunt of a dysfunctional family. And if you weren't here last week, we're going to cut your pride down a little bit. We said every one of us is messed up, okay? Every one of us has a dysfunctional family. As we looked at Joseph and saw that even he and his family was dysfunctional. But God redeemed the pain of his past. And you had a challenge to reframe your past because if we're in Christ, we're part of a new family. And we have a new family of origin with a great and loving father. Now today we're encountering the haunt of past failure. And I'm sure... We all have those moments in our lives when we just kind of go like this, like, oh, man, that is just really bad. So I have one to share, so bear with me. Um, My first career, I was a chef, and to be a chef, I went to culinary school. And I was in this this club where we got to participate in, like, regional, state, and national competition. So there were a lot of students going into the cooking category, but no one entered the baking category. And even though baking's not my thing, I said, I'll enter. Well, it turns out at the regional and state level, I was the only competitor in like the college category. <laughs> I was like, Lord, this isn't really what I wanted here. So guess who ends up going to the national competition for baking? <laughs> Now, a part of the national competition was you had to do cake decorating. I was not prepared for that. I, I was knocking it out on the bread and the rolls. I mean, the, the um, judges are coming by, and I could tell they were really impressed because I was like, I was just killing it. 
But then came the cake decorating. Honest, I just kind of stood there with the cake on the table the rest of the time going. You talk about humiliating. I just wanted to crawl under the table, but I was too stubborn as a zook growing up in Lancaster County just to go, I'm tapping out, I'm done. That was a humiliating experience. That, that was kind of a great moment of failure for me. Now, that, that, now that didn't really affect any other, anyone else. It just affected my pride. So that's, that's not so bad, but we, we might all have some failures here today that we're like, man, failure of a job, maybe a failed marriage, whatever it is. Maybe we had a chance at a promotion, we just blew it, and it's still just killing us to this day. What about some epic fails from history? The Hindenburg? You guys know about the Hindenburg? Yeah. How about this? Uh, remember New Coke? I kind of liked it, but... Yeah, that didn't make it. Blockbuster, they were really successful at one time, but then they failed to adapt. Netflix put them under. Remember Chi Chi's restaurants? Can you say E. coli, right? That kind of took them under, right? It, it was a failure. So we, we all have failures from our past that, that might be haunting our present life. So here's what God wants you to know today. If you have a past, a failure from your past that's still haunting you in the present. Here it is, and it's up on the screen. If your hope is in Christ, then your failure isn't final. If your hope is in Christ, then your failure isn't final. We're going to look at Moses. He's our case study. Each week, we kind of have a case study. We're looking at a specific character in which we see this big idea illustrated in our lives. And so we're going to look, we're going to look at Moses. Now, if you're not familiar with Moses, maybe you've watched the Ten Commandments. How many people have seen the Ten Commandments featuring Charlton Heston? Yes. So you, that, that's actually a good movie that, that allows us to understand a little bit about Moses, even if we aren't familiar with the Bible stories. If you're still not familiar with who is Moses, you've never watched the Ten Commandments, think of him as one of God's avengers. Okay, maybe that might be a little bit too strong, but he's one of God's heroes. He's probably the major hero of the Old Testament. He was God's appointed instrument to lead his people out from Egypt where they lived in bondage. And the book of the Bible that kind of depicts that story is the book of Exodus. It details their bondage and the rescue of the Hebrew people. And so it picks up where Joseph left off saying that there was a different Pharaoh who took command who did not give favor to Joseph and his family. And the Israelites grew and grew and the Pharaoh said, hey, they're overwhelming us, so we better put them into bondage. We better make them slaves. And they've been living in bondage during all this time. But God appoints someone. He raises up Moses to be that person to rescue his people. Now, what's interesting about Moses in Exodus, we, we learn about his birth. There's the birth narrative. But then it picks up again in Exodus 2, and he's already 40 years old. So there's a lot of time in there. We don't know what's going on, but we do know this from Acts chapter 7. Here's what it says, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. Put it in vernacular, he was a stud. He was a stud. He was the man. He was the man. Not only was he powerful in speech and actions, he was very, very knowledgeable. 
But rather than choosing to live the good life at the expense of his people, at the expense of his own people, Moses chose to take notice of the plight of his people. And that's where we pick it up here in Exodus 2. I'm just reading verses 11 through 15. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So um, this is a real intriguing story, isn't it? It begins with, let's call it, a failure of Moses. Now, as we're reading this, you might be surprised, okay, it looks like Moses murdered this guy, but the Bible doesn't say, like, doesn't evaluate his actions, whether it's right or wrong. And sometimes we can read that going, oh, does that mean, is God saying this is okay? Is God condoning vigilante justice? No, I don't think our Forks Township police want us to go out and commit vigilante justice, and nor does God, because we're supposed to leave room for his wrath. He's the God of justice. He takes that into consideration. He deals with that. But here's a little clue you need to know when you're reading the Bible, especially narrative, that sometimes it doesn't make an evaluation. It leaves it up to us that we're supposed to know, hey, that's not quite right. And so is the same here with this. Actually, in the Hebrew, it just tells us that Moses simply struck without intent to kill, yet the unintended result was death. He just wanted to teach the guy a lesson. But the guy actually died as a result of his, of his blows. Now, as we're looking at this, it's also helpful to understand that there are other texts that, that speak to this event. And again, one is Acts 7. We already looked at that. It says that when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people. Let's go down to the underlying part. This gives us insight of the Moses motive here. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. So we have a little insight here what Moses was hoping to achieve through this. He was hoping by acting on behalf of the Hebrews, they would go, hey, he's our guy. He, here's our guy. Here's the guy who's going to deliver us. But what happened? They kind of responded, yeah, he's, he's not our guy. He actually is, is rejected by them. And, and here's what Moses had to learn. Before you think you are the guy, God must declare you to be the guy. That's what Moses had to learn. He thought, okay, I'm going to declare myself the guy. You can't do that. You have to wait until God says you are the guy. And so Moses tried to cover this up, but he was found out. Moses didn't realize his actions were made known until the following day, where once again, Moses, he wants to intervene. And you appreciate his impulse, right? Good impulse. He's a righteous guy. He sees two Hebrews fighting. And he's like, why, why are you attacking your neighbor? And notice the response. Who made you a commander and judge over us? Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So, you know, if, if iPhones were around back then, 
Can you imagine like the messages going around on the Hebrew slave Facebook group or Snapchat? Hey, Moses just took out an Egyptian. Even without that, somehow this message goes viral. Okay, teens, just so you know, iPhones weren't around back then, all right? Just want to make that clear. Uh, And I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but I say this because um, a few years ago, my kids asked me, hey, Dad, was Jesus alive in the 80s? I said, he was alive and well, but not in the way that you think, okay? Kids have a distorted perspective of time. But what was alive and well was the news that Moses took this Egyptian out. And so Moses knows, man, I'm exposed. Have you guys ever been in a situation where your secret was found out? Yeah, that is not a good feeling. When you know, like, maybe you tried to hide something wrong that you did, and suddenly it is discovered. And so Moses panics. He panics. And to make matters worse... Moses thought he was the guy, right? And he's met with rejection. Now, this is very interesting here that this occurs very on in Exodus because it's kind of a window into Moses' life. Because all the years that he's the leader over the nation of Israel, what is he going to face time and time again? People rejecting him. People rising up in rebellion against him. So it's a little window into the life of Moses. Now, perhaps we could say that Moses' failure here was in his own eyes. People don't think I'm the guy. Remember the difference between our plan and God's plan? Remember this meme? (laughs) You know, we have our plan, our agenda, and then there's reality, right? And that was depicted perfectly in the life of Joseph who had this dream. My brothers are going to bow down to me. Well, his dream came true, but not in the way he expected He had to go through all those pits and those valleys until finally his brothers did bow down to him, but not in the way he expected. So here we are with Moses facing this reality as well, and and he's just scratching his head like, hey, God, I thought this was supposed to turn out differently. You know, as I kind of dived into this passage even deeper, I thought maybe, maybe this message isn't so much about the fear of failure or being haunted by failure, but more about the haunt of rejection. The haunt of rejection. Well, the great news about Moses and the great news for us is that his failure wasn't final because his hope was in God. And how do we know that? I'm not just reading that into the text, but Hebrews 11 23 through 26 tells us so. Hebrews 11 is kind of like the hall of fame for the faith. And here's what it says about Moses. By faith, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. So his hope was in God. His hope was in this deliverer to come who is Jesus. And that's what we need to remember today. If if we're dwelling on our failure, if our hope is in Christ, then our failure isn't final. Stop letting your past haunt your present. And maybe it's a haunt of a failed relationship, you know, failed job, whatever it is. You need to get the message in your mind that if your hope is in Christ, your failure isn't final. Moses' failure here wasn't final. Instead, as that fortune cookie said, it was simply a dress rehearsal for future success. 
And the incubator for his future success would be living in the land of Midian. This is where Moses flees, actually, for self-imposed exile. We learn this in verse 15. After he hears that, that Pharaoh is out to kill him, he went to live in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, here's a little bit about the land of Midian. It is no oasis, okay? It's not the Caribbean. It's not Florida. It's desert. Midian was desert or wilderness. And think about this. Moses is going from a place of popularity to living in a place of obscurity. It doesn't seem like a, a great place to thrive. It's a great place to hide. Now, what's interesting about this Hebrew word for wilderness, it means uninhabited land. How many of you have ever been like out west to the desert, California? Anyone? Okay, a few. Um, I've been to Moab, Utah. That's kind of like Red Rock Desert. And, you know, it's beautiful, right? Desert is, it, it is beautiful, but the flip side, it's very harsh, harsh conditions. So when I went out to Moab, Utah a few times, um, it's great for mountain biking, and that's why I went out there. But what I learned from the locals is that every year, there are unprepared people from the East Coast who die because they're not prepared for the elements. They just think, oh, this is great, this is beautiful, let's go on a hike, and they don't have enough water. And they die from heat stroke and things like that. So the, the desert is beautiful, but it's harsh, too. But, but here's what we need to know about the desert. In the desert is where God often does his best work in us. So here's a little snapshot of, of what the desert would do for Moses. And he spent 40 years in Midian. So, so think about Moses' life. The Bible divides it up into thirds. From zero to 40, he's in Egypt. 40 to 80 in Midian. And then he's called. He dies at the age of 120. That is a long time. A long time for God to do a work in Moses. Now, we're probably sitting here today, man, I hope, I hope I'm not in the wilderness for 40 years. I got less than 40 years to live, right? And that's probably not going to be the case for you. But here's what Moses learned in Midian. This was an incubator for how God was going to use him as a leader. Moses would learn to depend upon God in a harsh environment for 40 years. Moses would learn to navigate the challenging environment of the wilderness, which would serve him well for the years ahead, leading the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Moses would hear and answer God's call to be the leader over the nation of Israel. Now, there's probably a lot more lessons. I'm just breaking that down like 30-foot view. Now, Moses isn't alone in all this. There are a lot of other biblical characters who had significant encounters with God in the desert. It's where Jacob wrestled with God. It's where David fled for his life while King Saul was in hot pursuit. Elijah fled in a depressed state after a miraculous demonstration of God's power over false prophets on Mount Carmel. Even Jesus, Luke chapter 4, was led into the wilderness by the Spirit where he fasted for 40 days and was tempted by the devil. 
And I love underscoring that line that Luke says, that he was led by the Spirit. It wasn't an accident. God led him there to do battle and have victory over the evil one. Now, as much as I would love to take a road trip out west and go to Utah, to Moab, we don't have to go to a physical desert to reap these benefits. Here's the reality. You can be in a desert right now even while living in the Lehigh Valley. You can be in a desert spiritually where you feel dry. You're longing for God, but he seems distant. You can't find your spiritual bearings. You're weary. And we could go on and on, but I, I think you get the sense of what I mean by a spiritual desert. It's a time in which you're not sure what God is up to, and he doesn't seem very close to you, but you know he's there, and he has a reason for it. Listen, I, I'm telling you from past experience, spiritual deserts are not fun. And if you're going, oh, I love it, whew, you're masochistic or something. You must love pain. But no one asked for this. In fact, author and pastor J.R. Briggs, who I know personally, he stated in his book, Fail, this, we may curse the wilderness, but one thing is undeniable, he writes, it is a vital part of our spiritual development, building us up through God's deliberate purposes. And I love this last line, it is grace-laced scaffolding for our souls. You know, as I read that quote and I think about Moses' experience here, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be the pastor I am today without those desert experiences. Those were some of the most loneliest times, but the most spiritually enriching times in my life. And now I look back and go, thank you, God, for those. I never asked for them, but boy, are they beneficial. Some of those moments were just downright terrible. But they were moments in which Jesus was kind of all I had. The days were long, the nights were cold. I'm speaking figuratively. But here's what I want to say to you in love today. If you haven't had one, I hope you do. I hope you do. Because it'll cause you to depend upon Jesus in a way you never imagined. And maybe some of you are in that right now, and the, the message the Spirit wants you to get this morning is just be encouraged. That God is up to something good. You might not be able to see all that, but let me just encourage you, in faith, hold on to his promise. That he is with you. and He will not leave you or forsake you. He's going to use this for something good in your life and good for others. So trust in him. The desert is a classroom like no other in which Jesus shapes us and forms us into his image. And that's a huge success. Uh, perhaps maybe the bigger message this morning that we need to grasp is God does some of his greatest work in failure. He really does. And I don't know if you heard about all the stuff about John Gruden and remarks he, he made this week. I am not condoning his remarks. But I want to say to him, John Gruden, your failure is not final. 
your failure is not final. And just even a word to parents. You know, parents, we live in a day and age where there's a parenting style that says, don't let your kids struggle. Rescue them from every difficult thing. Lawnmower parents, helicopter parents, okay? Parents, sometimes the kindest thing we can do is let our kids struggle. Where are they going to learn to develop resiliency? You sometimes just have to sit back and let them struggle so that they can develop those muscles of faith so they can really lean into God. And I know that that's hard. That's really, really hard. But don't rob them of that opportunity to flex their spiritual muscles because here's the reality. It might be the greatest test of your faith too for you to say, God, I'm going to trust you even though every impulse in me is to go. <laughs> and so, if learning, to, if learning to navigate adversity was essential preparation for Jesus, the Son of God, then it's necessary preparation for our own children as well and for all of us as children of God. And so as, as we live in this culture that says you must be successful, and I'm not saying let's be mediocre. I'm all for let's do our best for God's glory. Let's strive for excellence. But at the end of the day, sometimes we strive for that and we miss the mark. But we believe in a God who's in control of all things, and we know that he can use those failures to help make us stronger and to be the people that he wants us to be. So let's not fear failure. If your hope is in Christ, then your failure isn't final. And here's your challenge. Don't flee your failure, but see through your failure. See through it to how God will use it to fashion you. And I love this, this perspective from 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4 is a letter that Paul's writes to the church at Corinth. And they're basically saying to him, you know, Paul, you're just not an impressive speaker. You don't appear very strong and have it together. And he's saying, look, God showcases his power in my weakness. And he says how God uses suffering and the perspective we should have in our suffering and even our failure. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. So we have to see through that failure to the eternal purposes of God and how he's working in our past and present to make us into the people that he wants us to be. See through your failure to the opportunities to grow and help others. Have you guys uh, ever heard of the name Chuck Colson? Okay. So what is Chuck Colson associated? What, what famous... Uh, moment in U.S. history is Chuck Colson associated with? Watergate scandal. Yeah, President Nixon. Okay, teens, you can Google this later. All right, you can read about this. So he was caught up in that scandal, and he ended up spending time in prison. Would we say that's a failure? Yeah, that prison time, we, that, that, that's a failure. But his failure wasn't fine. As a result of his conviction, Chuck Colson became a Christian. He placed his trust in Christ. 
And he later founded Prison Fellowship, a nonprofit prison ministry, and he became a prolific author, writing 30-some books that primarily dealt with having a Christian worldview. And I read some of those myself. Excellent books. Now, Charles, is, he's now with the Lord. He died several years ago. But he's a perfect example of how he didn't let his failure become final. Through his failure, he came to know Christ, and God used him in a miraculous way to bless others. We could say, as the fortune cookie said, which is very biblical, but I'm not saying every fortune cook saying is, but you got to read through the grid, all right? That's why we rely upon truth and say, is that right? This particular fortune cooking saying was right. Failure is a dress rehearsal for future success. And that's true for us when our hope is in Christ. So whatever failure is lurking in your past, I want you to know, God wants you to know that that failure isn't final. So let me just give you a little hint here of where you can combat this. The biggest place to combat failures from your past is right up here in your mind. There is a reason the Apostle Paul says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So as a Christian, when we're hearing those thoughts, you're a loser, I can't believe what you've done, that is not from Jesus. That is from the evil one who whispers lies in our ears. How do we combat those lies? With the truth of Christ, with the truth of his word. So that's where we fight the failure, here in our minds with the word of God and his Holy Spirit. So guys, if, if your tune has been, man, this failure is final. No, it's not. No, it's not. If your hope is in Christ, you need to realize that this failure is just another chapter in your story that he's going to use for your good, the good of his church, and most importantly, to glorify his name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this case study of Moses to remind us, Lord, that our failures in our past don't have the final word. They are not fatal. May we be encouraged today. If there's anyone here who is especially struggling with their failure, Lord, and their hope is not in Christ, I pray that as a result of this message that they would turn to him to realize that he is the one who can redeem their story and who can prepare them for a glorious future. We pray these things in Jesus, our precious Lord and Savior. Amen.